I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. How do you reconcile the desire to be proud of your nation if its beginnings were colored by unspeakable crimes? How do you remember histories of deportation, dispossession, mass rape, and even genocide that accompanied the birth of many nations? This is the dilemma for Turkey. Born out of the ashes of the old multi-ethnic Ottoman Empire, today's Republic of Turkey was built on the unmixing and even the eradication of many of those very same minority populations. The Armenian Genocide is one of the more prominent examples of the dark side of the origins of modern Turkey. Aaron Yetkin is a sociologist at Koblenz University in Germany and the author of Violence and Genocide in Kurdish Memory, Exploring the Remembrance of the Armenian Genocide Through Life Stories. Aaron's interest in the Armenian Genocide began his late teens and early 20s, working in the region of Van. When I was living in Turkey, I worked as a hiking guide, as a mountain guide for approximately five years, 2005 until 2010. So in this period of time, um, I... I, I worked a lot in the region of Van, and I discovered like, um, like towns—not towns, but villages—with uh, uh, with monasteries, Assyrian and Armenian monasteries, uh, uh, or ruins are emptied, you know, uh, or plundered by the gravediggers after the genocide. The city and province of Van were unique, not just in having the only Armenian majority population in the Ottoman Empire but also as a center of Armenian political and intellectual life. Maybe for the listeners about the region, like uh, what we call today the Eastern Anatolia, it's a political term for the, ter- uh, uh, for the Turkish state. Yeah, What we call today the Eastern Anatolia, or what we call today North Kurdistan, Bakush in uh, Kurdish, uh, was the West Armenia, you know, uh, uh, or it was called Armenian, or it was a part of the Armenian High Plateau. So, uh, that region had enormous Armenian population, not just with the, uh, with the census I mean here, not just uh, like how many million people lived there, uh, belonging to the uh, Armenian Christian Church, like the Gregorian, the Orthodox Church. This is not just what I mean, but also it was a place where the Armenian intellectual and political life arose. You know, one of the Armenian political parties was founded in Van. If I could put myself in the place of one of the participants in the tour, and I'm spending this money, and I'm traveling, and I'm in this region, and you're my guide, and I ask a question, well, what's the history of this church? What happened to the community that it supported? And and this is this is the Aaron before he's had the chance to really read the scholarship and literature, and he's really a product of that upbringing in Turkey, and he's got to react to that question. I'm just kind of curious, well, how would you, how might you have responded, at least during those early stages, and maybe you, you learn more later on, and that, that response might have changed. Mm-hmm. No, I understand. It was like uh, more or less like um, using some terminologies that were produced because you didn't you uh, you don't have the other um, tools to explain it. You know, you didn't read or you didn't encounter other tools to explain it. Uh, and one of the tools is like uh, using the terminology "tehcish," which uh, means deportation, but without questioning what it really means. 
So it's a crime as well, deporting people uh, or orchestrating deportations of the civilians. It's a crime. So um, if you use that terminology in such a setting, a tour or like a meeting and so on, so in Turkish it will mean not a crime because it was propagated. You know, it's still propagated, by the way, Turkish. <laughs> so, um, but genocide, uh, the term genocide was not so well known for me, I guess, until 2006, I would say. So after 2006, I read more columns like produced or uh, written by Hran Dink. Uh, the Istanbul Armenian um, journalist who was assassinated, murdered by the yeah by a right wing youngster or a militia, let's say so, um, supported by the state structures, um, and I would argue it was uh, one of the main main moments for the people in Turkey to realize. Um, what was happening in the country. What the Armenian journalist Haran Dink was challenging in the early 2000s was a long history of Turkish denialism of the Armenian genocide. Aaron explains that denialism goes back to the very beginning of the Turkish Republic. Turkish denialism, like state denialism, was always there. You know, from 1915 on until now, there was a kind of denialism with different uh, aspects or looking uh, or focusing the, the lens, uh, the lens on different aspects and so on. But the denialism, the notion of denialism, the aspect of denialism, that concept was always there. You know, even during the genocide, there were uh, propaganda uh, letters, uh, uh, the, the, the propaganda texts about the Armenian uprisings and so on, you know, the so-called Armenian uprisings. So the denialism was there, but after the, uh, after the genocide, like uh, after 1918, you know, uh, in Turkey we had two governments, one in Istanbul, in Constantinople, and another in Ankara. So these, uh, these, these um, trials, you know, uh, after 1918, they were were conducted by the Istanbul government or by the Antenta powers, uh, by the the foreign powers, like in Malta and so on, by the British power. It was not the case of the Ankara government, which was the winner of the war, let's say so. You know, so because it's the uh, predecessor of the Turkish Republic, the Ankara government. It was the political group that uh, founded the Turkish Republic in the year 1923. So th- that was the context. So about the about denialism, I, I say I, I argue that denialism uh, should be considered as a process, not as a category, because it changed. Like in the first Republican years, 1923 until 1950s. Uh, there was this denialism, if I uh, may use the argument of Yektan Turkilmas, another scholar in the field, uh, uh, that denialism was, uh, uh, was targeting the violence, you know. Uh, it was the denial, it was denying the violence for, uh, in those years, 1915 and 1918. 
So, because uh, we didn't have the term genocide, it was first uh, uh, discussed in the year 1948 in the UN. You know, until 1948, genocide was not a uh, judicial term. So, this is also why uh, Turkish state was denying the violence, not the genocide. So after 1965, so 50 years after ge- the genocide, uh, in the year 1965 first, maybe, uh, in the year 1965, uh, different groups uh, of the Armenian, different Armenian communities in diaspora, but also in Armenia, uh, uh, the Soviet Armenia, they were protesting. They went on the streets. So this was a moment uh, where Turkey um, changed its cause of denialism uh, from violence to genocide. And Turkey also used the term of genocide, you know, not in the uh, in, in means of like recognizing what happened, but denying what happened. In the 1990s, Turkish denialism took on an even more aggressive form through the search for Armenian perpetrators and Turkish victims with the construction of the Zev Martyrdom Memorial Site outside of Van. This is a memorial, Aaron explains, that not only denies the history of the Armenian genocide, but also the history and identity of the Kurdish community in the region. So one of the examples... uh it, what I wrote in my book is uh, the Zeven Martyrdom, uh, Martyrdom um, Memorial Site. Like it's a, it's a, it's a memorial site tw- uh, 25 kilometers away from the city center of one and built by the governorship of one uh, during a specific era uh, where the enthusiastic search for mass graves of Muslims uh, took place who were allegedly murdered by the Armenian militias. And, and such activities of uh, unearthing mass graves came to be an act of collecting evidence in quotation marks for Turkish victimhood thesis in the 1990s. You know, um, and the memorial site has an obelisk in the midst and a rotunda, uh, so to speak, a rondel with concrete blocks. Uh, the memorial site and uh, it is dedicated according to the information board to the I quote here. 2,500 hairy Turkish sons who were murdered by the Armenian militias bloodthirstily in different village names in villages in May 1915, end of quote. So the text on the information board uh, further includes aspects of the remapping and renaming issues, by the way, in Kurdistan, because uh, the names of the villages are all Turkish, even though we were in uh, we are, we, uh, we, even though that memorial site was located in northern Kurdistan, you know, and um, it redefined the Kurds with it redefine, redefines the Kurds with uh, Turkish sons, you, uh, so to speak. Um, and although the majority of, if not all, of these villages were Kurdish or Armenian in this very text, they carry Turkish names, and the Kurds became Turkish sons. So it was not just against the Armenian, let's say, claims, you know, uh, but it was also about the uh, Kurdish identity politics. Is it fair to to recap then that you have a 
maybe you you have the genocide that happens and you have denialism that goes back to to the very beginning um, but you don't have to really address it until you get to the 60s because there's no label for it maybe you're just denying the violence that happened and you mentioned also there are efforts to prevent armenians from coming back right that there there are laws that are passed so they 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 can't actually return there are a lot of people who do want to return um and uh and then as things evolve over time you have the labeling of it with the the 1960s uh, and you have a more blatant form of denialism where you have examples like this uh, Zev Memorial, uh, where you're actually accusing Armenians of committing atrocities. Uh, and then you get to the 2000s, and it's, it's this brief period of democratization in Turkey and a, a period of what seems like openness towards talking about violence in the Turkish past. You use the term like democratization, I would say more uh, liberalization, you know, because it was not uh, like the government was not trying to democratize the, the country, you know. Uh, it was a liberalization of the country or uh, some discourses, uh, but if it was about uh, like labor rights, you know if it was about the uh, uh about the rights for uh, certain groups no? freedom freedom of the press right yeah freedom of the press you know so it was not the democratization it's more liberalization so in the 2000s we see different ngos founded in the country looking into the past or uh, uh or saying like or arguing we have to face the history of this country you know, uh, one of the reasons of these, uh, of this move, of these movements were probably, or I would argue, well, in the 1990s, lots of academics, uh, went to other countries and came back to Turkey and worked in Turkey again, or they built their connections to Turkish academics. So, um, they also, like in the 1990s and the 2000s, so there was this internationalization movements so to speak in turkey it was not just like uh, what happened in turkey but i also hey, look uh, there is some uh, there is something uh, in the academic literature and we need to um, reflect it so um some of the ngos were founded in those years 2000s uh, some of the NGOs were already founded in the 1990s because of the uh, because of the repression uh, against the Kurdish people against Kurds. Um, in 2000s, it was in 2000s. It was like uh, after a period of violence, like the 90s. Uh, it was the moment to um, to to see. Okay, what can we do in the country? So uh, there was. There was the repression still, but it was different. It was uh, a bit more liberal, not democratic, but a bit more liberal, but more rooms, but not thanks to the government, uh, thanks to the uh, civil society. So civil society, journalists, academics, they, um, they, 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 they created that space but long in the long run. You know, uh, with, uh, after a long fight. And here you have a more subtle reformulation of denialism where you have official proclamations, official official documents. You're labeling one in short, the just memory one produced by the Ministry of Foreign, the Turkish, uh, the foreign 
minister of Turkey at the time uh, that's similar to this exhibit that you've labeled as uh, but the pomegranate exhibit um, where you're trying to recast. There's like, almost like a nostalgic uh, uh, recasting of, of, of the Ottoman past. And that was, from my understanding, from my interview with uh, Arai Shiler, there, there was during the, what, the 2000s a lot of nostalgia for, for the multicultural uh, Ottoman past, right? So maybe that's a reflection of that, that you're, you're trying to, to present this, this, this period as a golden era of coexistence uh, and communities got along and what happened? Well, the rise of nationalism, right? And, uh, and, and it's another way of turning the blame on the groups for their own, their own victimization. To start with, it is, um, um, that, that other example, the concept of just memory, uh, it was first presented by the former foreign minister Davutoglu, Ahmed Davutoglu, who afterwards, uh, became the prime minister and is now the leader of an, uh, of an opposition party in Turkey. Um, he, uh, well, in an article published in an Istanbul-based uh, policy journal, he presented his, uh, his concept, uh, that just memory. Uh, his concept is focused on a construction of the past, uh, what we call actually the remembrance or memory, uh, centered on a idealist, idealized uh, coexistence, a romanticized coexistence, where people with different religious backgrounds, languages, rural or urban living experiences have lived together in peace, so to speak, you know. Um, and it's not true. Um, in 2016, in April, for a brief time period, like uh, 22 days, there was a short-term exhibition that was based, that was the materialization of this just memory concept. The exhibition was called Narniyetile, if uh, I, I will translate like with the intentions of, intention of pomegranate, you know, uh, like the pomegranate, uh, pomegranate, the, the fruit is uh, something um, is is uh, something important for the Armenian culture, and, and on the other hand, it's a tool to 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 um, romanticize the history. And the organizer organizer was the Turkish Minister of Foreign Affairs of this exhibition. So the Foreign Minister was Davutoglu, who wrote that article. And some uh, months or after, uh, years after, uh, we had that exhibition. The narrative was not so blatant, yes. It's, um, it was organized, that exhibition, and uh, that exhibition was organized in a sort of Belle Epoque. I call it Belle Epoque because Belle Epoque also ended. You know, it was not the beginning of a new story, but it was just a short period of time and it also ended. Um, and, and maybe in, an in, in interesting point will be like the just memory concept and also the exhibition Nietzsche. Uh, they also were homogenizing all the communities in West Armenia and in the Ottoman Empire. You know, um, but we know from the historical studies that the Kurds in Istanbul were different than the Kurds, let's say, in Diyarbakir. Or the Armenians in uh, Bitlis Hizan were different than the Armenians in uh, Izmir, you know, in Smyrna. So it was not a homogeneous community. No? 
neither the Armenian community nor the Kurdish communities. They were not homogeneous. But the narrative of the jazz memory tries to homogenize like the state, Ottoman Turks, Sunni Kurds, uh, Sunni Turks, and the Armenians, like a binary, you know. But uh, it is not true. It was much more complicated. Maybe not complicated, but much more complex, you know. It was a complex structure. And um, that denialist uh, narrative of just memory looked into this, uh, not looking maybe, but produced that, that narrative, that discourse of co- coexistence. And for the coexistence, it used only two groups, two homogeneous groups, you know. Because if you present the story as complex as it was, so uh, you, you cannot work with a coexistence. In a complexity, you have different communities that were in like fight or in discussion with each other. And that was the reality in the Ottoman Empire before the genocide. So you have uh, a kind of like a Turkish glasnost, maybe. <laughs> it's fair to call it that. That happens... Uh, uh, Maybe beginning in the 1990s, you mentioned that there are NGOs that are promoting uh, the rights of different minorities that were subject to, subject to violence uh, uh, under the military uh, under military rule. That uh, you get into the 2000s, and there's a willingness on the part of the government to, to loosen the reins on on uh, freedom of speech, the press. Um, you have more Turkish scholars who are studying abroad, uh, coming back home with an awareness of 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 histories that maybe haven't been talked about in their own countries in their own country um and then you have events you mentioned too that you have events uh like commemorations that take place Taksim square uh uh and you have exhibitions that are organized could you talk about and, and this particular journalist who who uh who takes on the armenian past in a direct way so what, what are some of the examples of people really putting this these histories out into the public sphere I uh, particularly look into two exhibitions that were uh, organized in Istanbul in the years uh, 2015 and 2016 during my field research. One of them is Bizatalidinis, Please Deal Personally. Uh, It was a short-term exhibition designed by the Istanbul-based NGO Babel and History Foundation of the country and launched in December 2015. it was concentrated on the years 1915 till 18 and the question of what happened to the Armenians through treating some telegrams, uh, mostly sent by Talat Pasha, the orchestrator of the genocide, to the regional governors or state agents on the field. Um, according to the exhibition team, they considered a sample of 5,000 telegrams filed in the Ottoman archives of the Prime Ministry's state archive, the state archive, and uh, reduced the corpus of this sample to 400 pieces to exhibit. Uh, The main material of the exhibition uh, uh, were these telegrams and their transliterations from Ottoman Turkish into contemporary Turkish, um, uh, uh, like transliterations into the new alphabet. So the team cooperated closely with historians 
And one of the main deporta- uh, one of the main topics was the deportation politics. So that the exhibition hall was designed in the fashion of a deportation map. It was an original exhibition since the team disclosed new materials for the public. Uh, but that massive amount of telegrams reflected, so to speak, the massive organization of the genocide and uh, planning of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, extermination campaigns. Yet, uh, for the exhibits, low cost materials were uh, for the exhibits. Uh, the exhibits uh, low cost materials were chosen, like normal printer papers, A4, what we use here in uh, Europe, A4 papers, no fax miles, hanged on the desk and walls. And uh, the walls were uh, fully occupied uh, in a linear framing of telegram copies without comments, remarks, inspiring questions, or even explanations uh, that had to give the, uh, an irritating impression of being in an uh, unorganized archive. So it was a kind of anarcho- unorganized archive. Um, so the only um, provided orientation uh, consisted of the place names on the ground, like on the deportation map, and the brief biographies of the governors or state agents who signed uh, and received telegrams sent by Talat Pasha. Um, hanged on the pillars of the hall. So, if I may, like visitors literally had to deal personally. In my inter- interpretation, there was this issue of aesthetic impact not just because of the material quality, but the exhibition had a very high level historians, archivists, narrative, even though it was planned for the broad public. And after a few months in spring 2016, uh, I also visited another exhibition, launched again in the same uh, place, depot. And this exhibition was called Left Over, Left Behind. It focused on the forsaken elements of Armenians, like ruins, Left behind craftsmanship and people on the route of uh, on the route of uh, deportation after hundred years, the project team exhibited organized authentic and hand drawn maps to search in topographies that were inhabited by Armenians prior to the ex- extermination campaigns and to alleged alleged uh, Armenian treasures, family trees, objects like church keys, and so on. Now that the uh, team encountered during their field uh, trips. And the exhibition also included like uh, photographs of properties and video interviews with survivors, descendants, uh, living in small Anatolian towns. Uh, It contextualized the present situation on the Armenian high plateau and the past existence of Armenians and how people remember, for instance, through the myths on hidden Armenian treasures. So the, that exhibition, Left Over, Left Behind, provided visitors with different, um, with different initial points to bridge their biographical or collective disco- uh, co- or collective experiences, um, like stories told in families um, or geographical visualization, visualizations of deportations. Um, and it contains uh, pictures of recently built governmental ho- social housings constructed near church ruins and questions questioned the transformation of ruining, the memory and grave digging with the purpose of finding, uh, finding forsaken 
treasures. So the design and the objective of that exhibition uh, was totally different than Bizatarlediniz, even though both exhibition teams, uh, the creator teams, uh, were positioning for acknowledgement, for, uh, for, for the recognition of the Armenian genocide. So we again see a kind of heterogeneous space, a, a heterogeneous community. You know, uh, it, um, while Leftover was using the term genocide, for instance, um, Biza Halidinis uh, used Techir, uh, the deportations, in quotation marks. So these were also the differences. So you get uh, the opportunity to tell the story of this past, uh, uh, and uh, you have uh, these exhibitions that are organized. This This first example, I think you mentioned, is almost like, well, here's how historians go about researching this past, and you have hundreds of documents that are made available, and maybe the hope is this preponderance of evidence is going to shatter the denialist narrative, right? You bring all these documents that show all the orders, uh, the decision-making that happened, the, the, that, uh, that brought, that was behind the genocide. Um, but I think your point is that in the end, you leave the visitor, to, the visitor has to kind of wade through all these documents, has to try to figure it out him or herself, uh, that uh, it, it's a challenging way to try to understand this this past. Exactly, exactly. Uh, because it was a kind of messy archive, you know, and if you are not uh, a, a, a historian or archivist uh, get, who got that education, it was not so easy. Even for me, it was not uh, so easy to get an orientation in the hall, in the exhibition hall. Hmm. And I think you're mentioning that if you're relying so heavily on the archives, then you're reproducing the discourse of the state. And that's a discourse that talks about the genocide in terms of euphemisms, in terms of other expressions, right? Like the deportations. Um, So you you don't maybe take it on directly. Yeah, you, th- that exhibition didn't take it on dar- uh, directly, yes. Uh, and the question is for me more like, um, so there is a position, the denialist position, uh, that says it didn't happen. Uh, the Armenian genocide didn't happen. So on the contrary, if you say, no, it did happen, look, these are the documents. So the, what is the next question? For the public, you know, what should be the next question uh, that people would pose? How? How did this happen? Yeah. So, uh, an exhibition should like um, give some room to the visitors. Yeah? Give some room, provide some room, and say, okay, here are the facts, but how it has happened is here. Now you can read it, but. If if the visitor cannot uh, connect the, to the own biography, so th- so the question would arise: like, uh, was it a good exhibition in terms of like the aesthetics, no? in terms of the uh, communication with the visitors? Mm-hmm. Because I think this goes back to your point earlier that this genocide was only possible without 
participation of of regular people on the ground that it wasn't just uh, decisions made uh, uh, by the government uh, orders issued that it couldn't have a, something of of that scale couldn't have happened without broad widespread participation of of, of regular ordinary people uh, and this exhibition maybe cast it in terms of just the decision-making process without really giving visitors a sense of how regular people were implicated in this. That as well, that as well. Well, the, 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 um, in the exhibition, we, uh, the, the visitors had the opportunity to read all these telegrams. But if you have 400 pages in a whole, um, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a book. It's not a book. You have to stand and read, you know? So does Leftover then do a better job? Leftover is, is focused on what remains, what remains, the ruins, but also the people who may have had to convert to survive. Um, uh, so is it fair to say that that's a more, that's a broader uh, uh, approach to to that past? Does it give visitors a uh, a uh, truer sense of, of, of that history? How would you, I mean, how would you? I, I, I don't want to rank the exhibitions, but <laughs> just just the question would be like, uh, uh, whether we are talking about an exhibition or a book, you know? So the exhibition, an exhibition has to have other objectives, you know, uh, or other um, uh, other purposes, other intentions, you know, other, other, other uh, approaches than a book. Mm. But at least it uses the label of the genocide. Uh, so you could say maybe it's more direct and more honest. Yeah, but it was, it was at least in quotation marks, the deportations in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. But compared to the time where you were giving those tours and uh, you yourself really didn't have the, have much to work with to explain those ruins, this leftover ex- exhibit really fills in a lot of the gaps that were left out of the out of the official narrative right for for people who who had a chance to go they could have a better understanding of what they were looking at and what was left behind yes and uh, these interviews with the descendants of the survivors like uh, the leftover left behind I, they they use the, the creators use both names by the way right uh, this is why i uh, say now leftover left behind but they started just with leftover and in their website they change it afterwards you know, so in this exhibition, uh, there were uh, video interviews or interviews uh, like um, audio interviews with uh, um, with the descendants of the survivors. So the exhibition made it possible that the subjects, that people were the subjects who could also tell their stories. So in the other exhibition, I didn't have that impression that Armenians or Kurds or, uh, or actors of the genocide, uh, they were not the subjects. They were more the objects. You know? so, so, so we come also to the question of the agency. You know, if uh, if an exhibition or a study recognizes the agency of the uh, of the subjects, so in leftover that was, um, I had the expression, expre- uh, I had the uh, impression, and I also uh, reconstructed my experiences uh, in this ethnographic field research um, in in these terms. 
So the people who were the, uh, who were still there, no? the descendants of the survivors were recognized, were, um, were recognized and acknowledged as the subjects of this history that didn't mm. end. So left over or left behind doesn't really get at the how does it happen any any better than the other ex- exhibition. Um, hmm. It's it's a hard question. It's a hard question. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, if it doesn't get at this issue of agency and how you know, regular people carry this, you're just looking at what remains. Yeah, what remains, but how uh, regular people as a deal with it, you know? How they uh, how they uh, how they live in it, so to speak. So your your, I mean, the bulk of your study is on interviewing Kurds that still live in these areas, the area of Van, uh, and was that driven by this this desire to understand? Well, how do people make sense of agency and and the participation of their community in this this past? How can you understand? Uh, what agency means to to people who whose story is part of their their family history? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I have to, in, in complete transparency, I grew up my own path. I have an Armenian past, and my grandparents died in the 1990s. But my grandmother was a survivor of the Armenian genocide as a young girl. She came from Erzurum, uh, and the stories that I heard were pretty uh, uh, cast the, the Kurds as, as perpetrators. And I always remember my grandmother saying, well, she, she came from an affluent family and uh, her father was killed and they were marched uh, out of their community and her brother was dressed up as a girl to survive. And, and uh, the Kurds were the ones who were robbing them along the way, <laughs> kind of capitalizing on the situation. It was a very negative. And from reading your book, that seems to be a common narrative, uh, Armenian narrative, a remembering of that particular past and the role of the Kurds in that, that community. Um, and I know your, your your goal is not to tell the the, the, the history of, of what happened, but when you're interviewing this this these these people and they're delving into their own family histories on the one hand they seem to be much more open about recognizing what happened and labeling it as as a genocide um but um are are, are there limits to how, how far they go in terms in terms of their own memory work I and mean, what what did you find i mean how how did they remember that past uh, was it a really skewed, self-serving uh, type of memory, or an honest and, and open willingness to con- confront the past? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's an important question. And um, but to begin with, uh, Kurds living in Turkey uh, showed or have showed and a proactive standing uh, positioning concerning the debates on the Armenian genocide uh, in the recent years, like uh, in the last um, 15 to 20 years. And that position includes a broad spectrum of activities, beginning with restoration of churches by the Kurdish government, municipalities integrating like Armenian or Aramaic languages uh, for public services, and so forth and so on. You know, and uh, of course, like the public, 
declarations on recognition of the genocide. These also came from the Kurdish movement. Um, um, you are, or you already mentioned that uh, that Kurds uh, or the Kurdish movement were much more open or were much more um, uh, progressive. Not in these terms, uh, in comparison to the Turkish government. Uh, it's true. Yet again, Kurds in Turkey live under conditions of violence that, according to arguments made by the movement and by some scholars, occur in a quasi-linear uh, uh, continuum. So the, a continuity that is to be backdated to 1915. So... Um, um, In general, for Turkey and of course genocide studies in particular for Kurds, there is this question of how should we discuss bystanders and the effects of this bystanding role on the era after the campaigns. So one of the ways of pointing at the bystanding, profiting and of course witnessing role, role of the non-homogeneous Kurdish role is the instrumentalization thesis which I uh, encountered again and again, not just in the interviews that I uh, conducted in one and Istanbul, but uh, also in my ethnographic research, you know, uh, in, in my field trips. According to this thesis, this argument, the Kurds were instrumentalized in the hands of Ottoman Turkish rulers. Kurdish power holders and landowners to kill their neighbors, the Armenians. So they were played or lured into violence. Um, Kurds, without considering any local circumstances and any power relations, had been deceived to uh, practice uh, violence and participate in massacres and plunders, uh, according to this argument. So in these terms, the thesis, this argument makes the Kurds non-actors. So this is why it's as problematic. So, um, so you mentioned your own uh, family history. Uh, we also know from the studies and also from the other oral uh, history accounts uh, that were uh, that were recorded in United States and in France, uh, and interviews with the Armenian survivors. So we know that uh, Kurds were there; they were actors of the genocide. So the question is how to define that actor actorship. So if you if we say okay they were the uh, instrumentalized ones, so it wipes out the actorship and takes the agency away. So this is why it homogenizes the Kurdish picture and, from my point of view, harms the Kurdish progressive standing too. Um, it makes the Kurds victims of the genocidal events in the long run. No? And these instrumentalization teases uh, overlook or even retune historical facts, and this is why it harms the uh, the, the progressive standing of the Kurdish people. Um, like, if the argument is uh, designed by uh, through the instrumentalization teases, the resistance in one, no? and due to that, the agents of Armenians does not pop up. Uh, or uh, that the Armenians were also um, were uh, had also other actorships than being a victim. They it also does not pop up. 
So uh, the reorganization of the narrative occurs around the trajectory of the Kurdish history. You know, uh, the instrumentalization thesis is therefore not about the Armenian history. It's more about the Kurdish history. And this is my main argument. So uh, instrumentalization thesis is one of the, uh, one of the elements that I found out, but, or that I discuss in my book, but there are also others. And at the, uh, but uh, the, 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 my, my main argument is, the speaking about the Armenian genocide makes the uh, experiences of the Kurds discussable and describable. So they, they remember the Armenian genocide, the Kurds remember the Armenian genocide as the beginning of the violence, of the state violence in the region. Okay, so on the one hand, you can... Remember that past through this narrative you mentioned, this dominant narrative, the instrument, instrumentalization thesis, or how Kurds were manipulated, how uh, religious beliefs were manipulated, how uh, the state uh, uh, used uh, leaders within the Kurdish community to, uh, to carry out uh, the, the genocide. And then you take agency away from regular people that they were just... Uh, they were used. They were exploited. Uh, their leaders uh, were the ones who were in charge, and uh, you don't really have to take responsibility for 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 what happened. Uh, that you were basically almost like just following orders. Beyond instrumentalization, it, it, it becomes a vehicle for talking about your own past. That if you're the victim, um, uh, then you can it opens the door to talking about other experiences of victimization, which are, are real, right? That, that, that's part of the, what makes that, that area of van so interesting, right? That there are layers of histories of violence that, that, uh, that are part of that region. So you talk about the genocide, uh, you can then talk about well, what happened to your own community afterwards. Exactly. Like I, I would like to give an uh, example of, of, uh, from an interview. Um, um, I made an interview with a um, like with a, no, with a guy uh, who was in his uh, mid twenties, Azim. I call him Azim. Uh, he mentions that the time after Armenians in quotation marks has uh, worsened everything. You know, uh, and for the Kurds, it became much worse. He said, uh, and I said further. Now uh, I quote further: uh, They made a pact with the state, and later it was our turn. End of uh, quote. So his argument pins it down that there was a mutual understanding, a pact between the state and Kurds, as a like generalized group, which ended up with Kurds suffering under violence operated by their allies of this bygone pact. Uh, in a later sequence of our inter of our talk, um, Azim says, I quote again, after they, the Armenians, were deported from Kurdistan, Kurdistan became poorer and poorer because the Jebeliers and in uh, Midyat carpenters in Diyarbakir and so on were all Armenians. End of quote. So the gone richness of this geography uh, will haunt the Kurds, but not the Armenians. So it was like a kind of, uh, it was like a kind of curse, no? uh, in the absence of the Armenians, by the way. Uh, but the Kurds lost them, and now they have to live in their absence. 
So maybe you could say you're almost doubly victimized, that you were manipulated into participating, been betrayed by those that manipulated you, and then victimized by having to live in this impoverished region afterwards that was a result of the genocide. Yes, and uh, and that uh, that kind of argument, like the instrumentalization, what I call instrumentalization thesis, instrumentalization argument, it makes the uh, bystanders uh, naive victims, and that's problematic, you know. On the other hand, it also works to remember the history, to remember the past, uh, and contextualize what happened in the last hundred years, and through that it. Makes the it makes own experiences discussable and uh, and uh, describable. Hmm. So on the one hand, you need to tell your story, and there were horrible things that did happen to the Kurdish community, were massacres, right, that affected the Kurdish community. You mentioned in the nineteen thirties. So you need to tell this past, but it's the way you do it also helps you to not really address what what happened in your role in that in that earlier history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah like not just 1930s but 1970 uh, 19 uh, 90s 1980s because people were repressed and oppressed by the turkish state uh, by the turkish state so um it's 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 a it's a kind of dilemma maybe or an oxymoron. On the one hand, uh, it's um, the, that argument uh, produces a kind of new history. Uh-huh. Uh, on the other hand, it helps to talk about your own history or your own past. So uh, it's a bit of oxymoron, maybe. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's what's your sense, Aaron? Now you mentioned well the. the that these uh, this period of openness, uh, these ex- ex- exhibits, exhibitions that you looked at, uh, um, the the commemorations that that were happening during the the two thousand teens, that no longer was possible. I mean, could you have a leftover exhibition today? Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure how to answer that question because. Uh, I, uh, I finished my field research in the year 2016, you know, after 2016, like after I finished, uh, or just before I finished my field research, uh, there was, a um, um, there was a cube, you know, uh, or a tryout, so to speak of a cube and, uh, and, uh, the, State of emergency was declared in Turkey, so it changed lots of things. Like people, like Kurdish uh, politicians, uh, were um, got arrested, and they are still in prison. Hundreds or thousands of Kurdish uh, politicians, like on the local level as well, not just uh, uh, politicians who were in the parliament, the national assembly, but also the local politicians. Uh, got arrested and imprisoned. So, um, under these uh, conditions, I'm not sure what, uh, how, how to organize such an exhibition. Mm. I don't know. But and the period of the, the period of liberalization is over, right? It's, it's fair to say right, that uh, that that made it possible to organize these exhibitions that maybe made it possible for 
communities, you mentioned the carriers communities to take on restoration projects and organize commemorative events. Uh, that whole context, does that not really exist a- anymore in the way it did in the 2000 teens? Yeah, the, the Kurdish mayors were also in prison, so they cannot uh, do anything. So this is why uh, we cannot um, uh, we cannot evade any uh, progressive attitude in the Kurdish towns, you know, because uh, the the mayors who were who were elected, uh, but who were also from the Kurdish movement, they got arrested. Hmm. So however so, skewed and limited maybe grassroots memory initiatives were, at least they were much more open stance towards taking on those histories of violence. And maybe that today is not, that, that openness is no longer there. I, I'm, I'm, I, I really don't know the answer to, uh, for this question because um, I've been away of, Turkey, like I was in Turkey in, the, in these last years, of course, but not with the, uh, not with that lens to run a study, to conduct a study. So I had another identity, like <laughs> I was there to visit my friends and family. So, um, but you think you mentioned even what, even in your own in terms of your own research, right? You had hoped to take a, you'd hope to do a lot of interviews in the region of Van, and you had to scale that back, focus on Istanbul. That the context had become much more precarious. Yes, yes. Uh, it was the 2015 and 2016 when I uh, conducted my uh, field research trips uh, to one in Istanbul. And uh, one of the reasons why I uh, conducted, uh, why I recorded interviews in Istanbul was like uh, because uh, the, the war started again. So there was the war that was reignited after the June 2015 elections. So, um, so this is why I started first in Istanbul and then went to Bonn again. Um, after now uh, seven years, eight years, and the, the, the social dynamics changed in Turkey so rapidly. Um, I don't know. I really don't know the uh, uh, the answer. I have to. Uh, design a new research maybe and try but i'm i'm not sure i'm just searching for a conclusion that's all what kind of conclusion because yeah, there yeah. was openness and you point out well all the limitations of that and well where are things at now because the state never really changed it just uh, adopted a a different uh, stance on denialism right but there was definitely movement from the from the ground up right and that's that's what's fascinating about germany right because it seems like the state Right. was very resistant, at least in West Germany, to acknowledging what happened during the war. And a lot of the recognition came from the ground up. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I would argue, I would suggest, like in Tur- in case of Turkey, the NGOs or uh, grassroots movements or, or, or like the political movements, they already discovered what they can do. So I'm... I don't see any um, uh, any any reason uh, not to uh, start it again. Why not? So there is this experience already, no? and 
And uh, what uh, and is what the civil society uh, can achieve is uh, really remarkable. Not just in case of Turkey, but also in other cases, like in Germany. <laughs> As you mentioned, you know, so there's this experience, there's this background, uh, there's this toolbox, and um, uh, we have uh, lots of uh, histories in Turkey um, regarding the uh, violent pasts, regarding the atrocities. So um, why not? Aaron Yetkin is a sociologist at Koblenz University in Germany. He is the author of Violence and Genocide in Kurdish Memory. Exploring the remembrance of the Armenian genocide through life stories. Aaron, thanks again for taking time for this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you for inviting me uh, for this talk. Next month, we'll hear from Jenny Wustenberg from Nottingham Trent University about her book, Civil Society and Memory in Postwar Germany. We'll learn about the activists who transformed the memory of the Nazi past in Germany and helped deepen German democracy in the process. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.